This is Intertractional, an exploration of Star Trek through an intersectional feminist lens. Star Trek is both a reflection of our society and an aspiration for our future. The stories it tells shape our world. Intersectionality explores intersecting forms of oppression and how they affect individuals with compound identities. Star Trek is for feminists. Hello. I'm Ryan. And I'm Becca. And uh, we're really excited to do this episode about gay stuff, (laughs) about LGBT issues Um, in Star Trek. Right now, there's a lot of talk about it because there's um, the very first gay couple in a Star Trek series on Discovery, but uh, we wanted to talk about some older episodes. Uh, So we watched two episodes. We watched The Outcast, which is uh, episode 17 of season five of The Next Generation. This episode was written by Jerry Taylor and aired in March of 1992. In it... The Enterprise arrives at a planet populated by the Janai, a genderless species. They ask for help in locating their ship that disappeared. Commander Riker and one of the Janai, named Soren, spend a lot of time preparing a shuttle from the Enterprise to help locate the Janai's missing ship. As they're working together, Riker and Soren discuss the differences between their cultures and how being genderless or gendered works. Soren eventually tells Riker that she identifies as female and explains to him how gender Janai are shamed, ridiculed, bullied, and uh, ultimately sent to conversion therapy. At a diplomatic event on the Janai planet, Riker and Soren find a private spot in the garden and kiss. The next day, Soren is put on trial for her gender identity. Riker tries to curtail it by saying he forced the kiss on her, but Soren instead makes a coming-out speech, imploring the court to let her and others like her live openly. Instead, she is sent to conversion therapy, and in the final scene with Riker, acts as though it was the most right and proper outcome. Yeah, so that's heavy. (laughs) (laughs) So that's heavy. Um, And then we follow that up with an equally heavy episode, uh, which you actually, you hadn't seen this one before. That's true. I'm like an Enterprise noob. Yeah. Uh, which all of you should watch Enterprise. It is, um, not as bad as everyone says. I mean, I could be wrong about that. I just love all Star Trek, but I don't think it's as bad as everyone says. So we watched Stigma, Enterprise season two, episode 14. It aired February 2003. And it was actually written by Rick Berman and Brandon Braga, which are the two major producers in charge of Star Trek stuff after Gene dies. In a previous episode, T'Pol was assaulted by a Vulcan from the counterculture sect known as Vitash Kator, or Vulcans Without Logic, who subjected her to a non-consensual mind meld. She has since developed Pinar syndrome, an incurable neurological disorder that can only be contracted through mind melds. At this point in Vulcan history, mind melding is not common and considered a taboo form of intimacy. Dr. Phlox has been treating T'Pol, although her condition is unknown to the crew. When the doctor has an opportunity to ask a contingent of Vulcan doctors for advice about Pinar syndrome at a medical conference, the Vulcans become suspicious that T'Pol may be ill. She is subjected to a series of degrading inquiries and nearly stripped of her rank and her commission until the youngest doctor clears her of suspicion by outing her 
as a mind meld rape victim. Captain Archer remains angry with T'Pol, with the Doctor, and with the Vulcans throughout the episode, and makes several impassioned points about bigotry. There's also a whole subplot about polyamory, which we will talk about later. And then I just, I want to add that this, um, depending on your source, was either mandated or highly encouraged from Viacom in 2002. They wanted all of their fictional programs on their schedule to have an episode about the HIV AIDS epidemic. It's pretty clear that Pinar syndrome is space AIDS and that mind melders are people who get space AIDS by having space sex. <laughs> I think. Mind space sex. Mind space sex. That they're not supposed to have. Gay mind melding. Uh, I was I was wondering how much you bought that metaphor, mm. Becca, mm-hmm. especially as someone who hasn't watched a lot of Enterprise. Enterprise is a prequel. Um, it takes place before Star Trek, the original series, um, in which we see uh, Spock giving all kinds of people mind melds, like all the time. Um, sometimes without their permission (laughs) and it's never presented as a problematic thing. And I think in fact, in one of the movies, he gives a mind meld to a whale. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. I've, I like love a journey home and I just like all of the whales. Anyway, I, um, I think it was a pretty effective allegory for AIDS, um, they set themselves up for this storyline where mind melding is a practice that's only done in this small community and it's very taboo is a straightforward uh, allegory towards homosexuality. And then like the fact that there's this particular illness that can be contracted through this activity is also straightforward in terms of like alluding to AIDS. Yeah. Um, Yeah, definitely within like, five to ten minutes of the episode, you're like, oh, they're talking about AIDS. Mm-hmm. Like, it is, there's no way it could be lost on anyone. Um, I think, in fact, they make it even, I think this is where the dialogue was in the early 2000s. They make it um, something that they can't help. Mm-hmm. It's like only a certain subset of Vulcans have the ability to mind meld, and they're born with that ability. And so it's seen as kind of like the nature, like the born this way, nature versus nurture argument, Mm -hmm. Um, which is also weird coming from other series of Star Trek where basically all the Vulcans can mind meld. And um, don't worry, audience, they explain this away in season four of Enterprise and everything ends up squaring. But at this point... Like, all Vulcans can mind meld, but only some of them can initiate it, which is why mm. T'Pol can have this disease, um, even though she is not a member of the mind-melding subgroup, but she had a mind meld performed on her. That part of it is interesting. The, pa- the, the fact that it's presented as this, this action was forced upon her and she contracted this illness through what essentially a rape... Um, is like throughout the episode, she does not want to use that in her defense. Mm-hmm. People who contracted AIDS from blood transfusions right. were pitied and mm-hmm. sympathized for in a way that people who got it through having sex were, and in a lot of ways still are not. Don't there's no sympathy for them. Right. 
now you have an illness, but like you earned this illness, so we're not going to research it. Yeah. And and you see that in this episode that uh, when Phlox goes to these doctors, not only will they not help him, they're like, we're actually not really doing research on this. Mm-hmm. Even the research we have, we're not going to give you, but we're not highly motivated to help these people. But they keep coming back to like the issue of how she got it. And mm. um, several characters keep telling her, like, just let them know that you were mind raped and they will help you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think she and sees that it it plays into the notion that the people who are doing this are somehow like evil and wrong and that it's okay somehow for have, for her to have this only if she contracted it through some like non-consensual mind melding. I don't know, it's just it's just frustrating from a modern perspective to think about such a thing because the idea that you should be punished through having an illness for some either innate characteristic of yourself or something that you chose to do in like even if you took precautions i think that there's there's like a lot of ways that we can talk about this through about stis more generally or even pregnancy yeah, with all of the like abortion bullshit yeah. that's coming up it's like women are are being punished for having consensual sex or not consensual sex like the some of these laws don't even allow a uh, rape or incest right. part outs. yeah and, and that, I mean and that's always an argument that's brought up to be to be leveled at really to gain the sympathy of people who have no sympathy for you at all mm-hmm. right that's why they're like what if it was an 11 year old rape victim mm-hmm. Um, what if it was a child who got a blood transfusion? Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, what if this happened to them by no fault of their own? When really, it's happening to everyone by no fault of their own. Right. right? Or, like, no one wants to get AIDS. No one wants to get pregnant when they don't want to get pregnant. Right. And, uh... Like, if there's a treatment, the treatment should be available to anybody who seeks it. Mm-hmm. Anybody who needs it because they have an illness. Mm-hmm. And making it matter how or why you have it is it's a means of control and it allows for judgment from others that should not exist it's just like the the row argument is that what a woman and her doctor discuss should be private mm-hmm. and what like medical treatment you're seeking should be i think equally private. Dr. Phlox goes to these med- these Vulcans who are at this medical conference to ask for help and he's he's trying his best to um, make it make up some story about how he's investigating some other kind of illness that has similarities to this one. Mm-hmm. Um, he's trying to protect He's her. trying to protect Paul. He's trying to not even bring her into it. He's he's doing his job of trying to maintain doctor patient confidentiality. Um, but it's a thin veil, right? Um, where they, they immediately assume that they're, that he is actually trying to treat to Paul. You get the impression that they were look like they immediately went and looked up. Is there a Vulcan on his ship? Oh, there is. 
they confirm that she has the illness by getting her DNA without her being aware that they that they took a sample. Yeah. There's this like underhanded nature about the whole thing and as soon as they do confirm it, she's going to have like her rank revoked or whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. She's on the ship uh, under the auspices of the Vulcan High Command. So she's going to have her rank revoked. Uh, she's going to have her commission revoked. They're de- sending her back to Vulcan. She can't stay on the ship. So she's basically going to lose her job and like have to report to Vulcan to be like, what's my new job? Um, which will probably be nothing because mm-hmm. it will be shameful. Um, which is very shocking, I think, as we, we view the Vulcans as a very logical, non-emotional people. And they are having such a stringent reaction Um to Pinar syndrome and then pretending like it's logical, which is just infuriating. Mm-hmm. And when actually they're being uh, terrible bigots, as um, Captain Archer points out many times during the episode. He's ready to go on a rampage oh, and yeah. Paul's is like, please don't. <laughs> yeah, because it's not helpful to her. It's not going to help her and at all. he has nothing to lose. I mean, he's worried about losing her. Right. But he doesn't have a disease. Um, he's not. He doesn't have to answer. He doesn't have to, he doesn't to, have to report to the high command. Yeah. He doesn't have to report to the high command. Even the people that he does have to report to, like when he reports to Starfleet, like they basically let him do whatever he wants. So he's not really exercising his um, empathy muscle. Start so going back to her being sort of like an innocent victim. Something I've been wondering, um, trying to look at this uh, critically, are the writers trying to point to that? Um, hypocrisy or are they participating in it? Would it have been like they don't have a gay Vulcan character they Mm. don't have a mind melder Vulcan character they don't have her having space aids the way you would get space aids Mm -hmm. and so she's this virtuous victim to the audience as well Mm -hmm. yeah I think that like when I watched it my read of her like refusal to just come out and say like it was not this mind melt was not consensual um is that she she's basically behaving as an ally right mm-hmm. like she doesn't want to play into the stigma she doesn't want to use the, the fact that this certain people are stigmatized to her own advantage um i think there's probably also a secondary motivation of her she doesn't want to reveal herself as having gone through a traumatic non-consensual mind rape especially because she's such a strong character yeah and such a private character and i don't i don't mean strong character like she's written as a strong female character i mean just her perception of herself is someone who's in control yeah and uh, i don't think she wants that messed with yeah so i think that both of those things are at play um and i'm like but I do think that the kind of this ally position is one of one of the advantages that she's taken. I don't know. I don't actually know how long the term or the like notion of allyship had cultural awareness around it. I would guess. I think at least for me, it came in much later than two thousand three, two thousand two. Yeah, I mean, I think it was. So, like, I started college in 2003, in, like, the fall of 2003, and I remember going to the LGBT group, and uh, at Oberlin at the time, it was called the LGBTQIA mm-hmm. group, <laughs> and the extra, the extra letters were queer, 
intersex, and I don't even think it was asexual. I think it was ally. Mm. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Because um, I don't remember hearing about asexual until much later. But I think I think it was ally. So I think it was there, but I don't think it was... It wasn't there the way it is today, mm. where everyone's claiming it and talking about it, and where it's like on the, the news or like mainstream talk shows. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, so it's like slowly crept into mainstream, yeah. but it was... It, that notion was around. So... Perhaps uh, the enlightened writers in the Star Trek writers' room, Enterprise writers' room, were um, thinking of T'Pol as an ally in this particular characterization. Regardless whether or not, that's how I view it. They don't have these particular types of characters represented otherwise. That at least she's not, she's not like all of a sudden going to be a... A gay Vulcan, right? Right. They're not gonna like <laughs> make that weird character. She has cult. the hair for it. <laughs> I would love. I would have loved to see um, a bisexual to Paul, um, but it was not in the cards. Mm. If anything, Hoshi is played as bisexual, like briefly at one point. Like mm. there are some uh, sexy lady aliens, and they catch her eye. Uh, but even that is just a the tiniest of moments. Mm. They really hammer home. Um, how much having Pinar syndrome uh, is a danger to your social status. When the young doctor comes out, not as having Pinar syndrome, but as part of the minority, uh, he loses his job. Right. Like, immediately. I forgot um, about that part of the yeah. episode, that he is a mind melder. He, yeah. Um, and that's why he wants yeah, to help her. I see. Yeah, so this is a very... Um, this is like a very special episode of Star Trek that is very much trying to teach a specific lesson. It's trying to, to bring the audience up to its liberal values that they feel that they've already mastered. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can argue about whether or not they've totally mastered them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I feel like that, that brings us back around to the outcast. Yeah, so let's take a, a little break. A very special episode a decade prior. Right, and talk about another very special episode. All right, welcome back. And we're uh, back. We're, so, on the theme of very special episodes. Wait, also, like, let us know if you want to be an ad. Ooh, yeah. Our podcast. Like, let us know. We don't care how big or small you are. Um, we will put you in here. <laughs> because, unlike in Star Trek, we are still part of late stage capitalism. Right? Oh, if only we could have replicator technology and then everybody doesn't need anything forever. Yeah, because that's totally what would happen. Oh my god, we... We're definitely going to have an episode where we talk about replicators. Yes. Oh, my God. And, like, yes. the power that comes therein. Um, yeah. So, anyway. So, talking about The Outcast, which is this episode where Riker falls in love with a member of a species that is genderless, but who chooses to identify as female, at least until the very end of the episode, after yeah. she has gone through conversion therapy. She's like a like a gay, trans, closeted lady. Or she yeah. isn't an agender, non-binary species, and she's pretending like she feels that way. Right. She's, she's at the beginning of the episode, she's, like, performing this act. She's, she knows that she identifies as female. Like, she's, she talks to Riker about how she's had relationships with 
members of her species who identify as male. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's like closeted. But she's, she's closeted. Um, and yeah, so like when this episode was written, it was definitely written in, with the intention of being an allegory to homosexuality. I I mean, from a more modern viewpoint, I think it's also a good allegory for trans existence. She's choosing a gender when right. she should have none. Right. right. Yeah. Like one of the reasons that LGBT is lumped together is mm-hmm. that the the types of stigma that fall onto people who identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender are often like very similar. I'd say, I mean, I think it's clear that mm-hmm. trans people are much more vulnerable than LG or B people modern in modern day. At this point. Um, they're all in the same pot around like notions of gender roles, notions of gender identity, um, notions of gender as something that's indelible and that mm-hmm. you don't have a choice about or that like even if you feel a certain way, like your biology is yeah. paramount. And these are also, even within this community, uh, definitions that have shifted over time. Like, Mm -hmm. looking back at historical figures, it's often hard to figure out, like, were they trans? Were they gay? Uh, Were they just gender nonconforming? Like, like, it's hard to um, place these labels as we understand them today onto historical figures, so I feel like at some point there might have been more fluidity Mm-hmm. Among these concepts, but they're definitely all to they're they're related. They're all together for a reason. Yeah, and and I think you're right that some of that reason is like the the hardship that I, I say I'm I keep saying they I mean I, I'm bisexual I keep saying they I'm I'm a I'm a they I'm in this they <laughs> so but yeah and I'm like I'm an ally I guess yeah. I identify as queer it's a little confusing but I am bi romantic. Yeah, um, we so accept I'm you, like, Speaking for all the bisexuals, we accept you. <laughs> I like this episode. I think that they are clearly trying to do something important. And it's one of the reasons that I really love Star Trek on the whole is that they have clear like moral viewpoints and mm-hmm. they tell stories that reinforce those. One of the questions that I had about this episode is, like, how do we feel that it, it resolves by Soren going through conversion therapy and then being, to- being like, it's talking so, to Riker like she's totally fine? It's so weird. And, like, and I, I don't understand why they did that. I have some theories. One mm. theory is that Riker was legit in love with her and they were not going to adopt her as a cast member and they had to break his heart somehow. Right? They're like, this is a one-off. Mm. He's got to go back to the ship uh, to flirting with his BFF, Deanna. It's, it's problematic. And I think that there was some pushback from some uh, LGBT groups at the time that, I mean, we don't know. Like, this particular species is pretend. But at least with them, there was some scientific or biological basis for their conversion therapy working. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas we know in real life, all of the data says that it does not work. At, like it, it doesn't work. It doesn't stick. It, it leads yeah. to, to suicide. It's very dangerous. 
Um, and, and so that's problematic that it worked, even though you have all the voices of the episode objecting to it, mm-hmm. objecting to it as barbaric. Riker is clearly very distraught. Uh, she doesn't want to go through it. And, and you you wonder if it even actually did work for her. Yeah, well, she in the... Like, or if she's when just, she's like, on, done. When she's put on trial, for as it's revealed that she identifies as female, which is something that she, like, this culture does not allow, that she makes a very impassioned speech for herself to be able to live with her gender identity and for the people who like her. What I need and what all of those who are like me need is your understanding and your compassion. All of the loving things that you do with each other, that is what we do. And for that, we are called misfits and deviants and criminals. What right do you have to punish us? What right do you have to change us? What makes you think you can dictate how people love each other? And it's like it's interesting to me the the way that this is framed from like the Janai history that we get is that they used they used to have genders in their society and they evolved past that mm-hmm. and that they have evolved now into this genderless date um but like the question that i'm left with in that context is that like what does it say about their culture that they in order to maintain this notion that they're genderless they routinely put members of their population through what's kind of like a pretty brutal psychological change like it's it's not clear how exactly this is done, like, what's medical, what's forced in some other way, but, like, whatever it is, they're doing this routinely in order to preserve something that at the same time think is innate. Yeah, so, so, um, I have so many thoughts about this. It's strangely, I, I feel like that society is almost this weird futuristic backlash to um like hyper liberal thinking um to like second wave feminists who are like don't shave your legs don't wear lipstick that's a tool of oppression um where uh signs of gender identity are seen as a way that we separate ourselves in a way that we lock ourselves into gender roles Mm. like conservative scare stories where people Mm. in the future are so concerned about equality that they take equality liberally. I remember this story where um, people who are athletically gifted are forced to carry around heavy weights to oh, slow them down. Yeah, this is the. Do you know? What I I'm think this is a Vonnegut short story. Oh, okay, yeah, maybe. Harrison Bergeron. Like, yeah, anybody who's like above average is made to either carry heavy weights or yeah. have some kind of like 
brain implant that gives them an electric shock when they start having like complex thoughts or whatever. It's fucking creepy. It's creepy and it's scary and it's it's also a really great story, but I don't think it's um, a realistic projection of what would happen in a society where people are concerned with equality. Because yeah. like what people are actually concerned about are like uh, equal rights, not necessarily like equal performance. Right. Um, or, or equal value of different types of performance and like different types of uh, skills and intelligence. Oh, and absolutely. so it's just this like, it's this really ridiculous projection of like what could happen in the future. Uh, I mean, Ayn Rand does similar things where like she invents a society in Anthem where people don't use the word I, they only say we because mm. they can't have any individuality. And although I know that this episode was written about gay sexuality, it also has this sort of weird flavor of like what would happen if the feminists won mm-hmm. and we erased gender completely. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, like, which reminds me of when Soren's talking to Beverly, when, when she's talking to Dr. Crusher and she's like, I like how you do your hair. Tell me about your makeup. <laughs> yeah, she wants to she wants to explore like gender presentation, what conveys femininity mm-hmm. and like in in within that conversation Beverly is like um oh like we women do this or that in order to look a certain way and in current human society men and women are treated equally. Mm-hmm. Um, which I, I, I certainly question that this show, like, uh, portrays that, portrays that in a actually like a believable yeah. way, but yeah, regardless, no, they, that's what they, that's what the crew of the Enterprise thinks. Right. No. And they did, um, they did kill off their butchest female character in the first season. Yeah. So, I mean... It's interesting because, like, my impression watching it is that, like, Beverly and Troy are valued equal members of the crew who are on TV because they're hot. Mm. And, uh... Tasha Yar. Not that Tasha Yar isn't hot, Mm. but she's, like, very, like, late 80s kind of, like, butch hot. Yeah, she's butch hot. I think, so, this is a little bit of a tangent, but my understanding of why that her character was killed off is because the actress who plays Tasha Yar was like found out to have been in something pornographic or involved oh. in something pornographic. What? And that she's then like made to leave the show because of this, because they can't have this like scandal on their hands. What? So, I didn't know that. Yeah. So I think I always just thought they were like, uh, she's not working. <laughs> Let's keep the femme characters. Topic for I knew there episode. was drama, but I didn't know what the drama was. Oh man, okay. Yeah. You guys. I know, right? It's like so much. Um, but but yeah, no, absolutely. It's like for whatever whatever the reason, the result is that the more like stereotypically feminine presenting female characters are the ones who remain. Yes. And um, even like, uh, what's the what's the doctor's name who's not Crusher? Um, Pulaski. Pulaski. Dr. Pulaski. I love her. And she was also, she was like, she was in the original series as a hot chick who would show up periodically. She plays like two different characters. So they wanted to bring her back. But, uh, yeah, but she's like 56 or something. She's relatively old. And like, even though she's a fantastic character, like eventually they bring back Dr. Crusher. Uh, she's more attractive and then also she has this like flirtation with Captain Picard that I think that like people 
who are fans of the next generation really either like. really like or really hate. Yeah, so so Beverly has this opinion, voices this opinion that human men and women are treated treated equally um, within their culture, and like I would say, in contrast, there's a there's an interlude in this episode where like a, a bunch of the bridge crew are playing poker. It's like it's Worf and Deanna and um, Data, Data, and they have a conversation. And Beverly. Oh, she's there too. Yeah, everyone's That's there right. with Jordy. So they're all there, and they um, they're so they're playing poker. And Deanna gets the call the next game, so she calls a game with a lot of wild cards and Worf is immediately scoffs and he's like that's a woman's game yes. uh too many wild cards make it like too easy to win or something um and then like in this conversation he reveals that he's frustrated by the Janai like because he's uncomfortable that they quote all alike Wait, also, can I just add, Yeah. he's talking about this in response to all of them gossiping about Riker and Soren. Oh, yeah. So they're all like, what's up with those two? Something's going to go down. And then he's like, oh, that makes me uncomfortable. So he's not just, like, uncomfortable with them. He's, like, uncomfortable with, like, one of his peers being attracted to these weird genderless people. Yeah. He's, he's, I mean, so Worf is always a token for the Klingons in general, right? Mm -hmm. Like, he's routinely given lines where he's like, Klingons don't, Klingons are whatever. And also, and he doesn't actually really know. Yeah. Because he was raised on Earth. Right. Which is like, it's weird that he, he routinely gets to speak for this whole, like, race of people, which, Mm -hmm. like, it's, problematic that especially in TNG they're portrayed by people of color Mm -hmm. and that they're presented as this kind of like brutal savage warrior class and he conveys that in Klingon culture there's like clear gender roles male Klingons and female Klingons like behave differently and that's the way it is and it's good Klingon women are like strong and sexually aggressive there's still gender roles and he's into them and right. they make him feel comfortable right and then and then when I'm steal your line oh go, go no I was just gonna say then he says my favorite part he looks back at his hand which he, earlier he said would be easier to win and he goes it's hard to tell what's in my hand with all these wild cards with just like hammering home how comfortable he is with this uncertainty, mm-hmm. um, which is I, I think you're right. I think another way that this this episode really is about trans issues, um, and, and not just using sort of like reverse trans as a stand-in for uh, for homosexuality. homosexuality. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because he's like he just <laughs> yeah. You're right. That line is great because it's just like. I'm confused. <laughs> I don't want to deal with... I don't want to, like, address my confusion. I just want it to not be this way. And it's such a... It's... I mean, it's the behavior of bigots everywhere to say, like, because I am confused and my confusion makes me uncomfortable, other people should behave differently. That's not an appropriate, in my opinion, point of view to have. If something makes you uncomfortable because you're unfamiliar with it, you can either say, like, 
somebody else is doing that, it's not my business. Or you can say, I'm going to address my discomfort with curiosity mm-hmm. and learn more. Which is what Riker does. Yeah, absolutely. Um, she talks to him about how she, you know, she saw children bullied in school and the threat of conversion. She really opens up to him like over the course of several um, shuttle repair sessions. Right. It's very intimate. It's They're very like alone. intimate. It's... I'm just like, how long does it take to repair the shuttle? <laughs> uh, but the cynic in me is just like, Riker really likes having sex with aliens, no matter what they look like. Um, but it is sweet to see someone who we've previously seen almost as a womanizer mm. or a playboy type being like, okay, even before she comes out to him as female, like genderless butch alien uh, with a b- really bad haircut, I'm kind of into you and just like picking up what she's putting down. Yeah, totally. I mean, like this relationship for Riker feels exceptional to me because he even goes to Deanna and says like, Hey, I think I'm falling in love. Like, Mm -hmm. and then they have a conversation about how that's not going to, that's not going to be an issue within their relationship. And like, I'm a big fan of Riker and Deanna's relationship. I think, I think their poly are open and like, they're maybe not having sex all the time, but they're committed to each other in a deep, in in an intimate way. Yeah. Um, And so, him coming to her and and saying this is an indication that his feelings are are pretty strong and in a way that I don't think other times that he gets kind of like a, a love interest for an episode he's not going to Deanna and being like hey I want to like make make it serious with this chick you know yeah I, it's striking me right now having these two um notes back to back like Worf is a foil for him uh, in this episode because he's the other super masculine character right and his uh inability to try to understand and to try to work through his discomfort versus like Riker's total confidence in his sense of self and his sexuality um that he, you know he is not going to be made to feel uncomfortable by this wonderful person who he's met. Right. And he doesn't he doesn't act emasculated right. by the notion that he might be falling in love with somebody who doesn't identify as female. Um, he's very he's very curious and like he and Soren's curiosity I think is met equally on both sides. They spend a lot of time talking about sex and sexuality like within their certain cultures and like I think they have kind of a little argument about whether heterosexual sex or like what the Janai um mating rituals or processes are like somehow involves a plant yeah who knows (laughs) we don't know what they do but it's it's a little out there yeah and she's like she's into it she's like oh it's very intimate and loving and nice and then Riker's like well but you know boning yeah Um, (laughs) yeah you have to wonder what they end up doing I mean they have one kiss they have one kiss but I am I totally believe that they were like that they went a lot further behind the bushes Oh, interesting. I, but I just, you know, Star Trek is so sterile, hmm. and it's it's very um, sexy, but characters are never portrayed as having sex, so my headcanon is just that they know children watch this show, so they're not going to directly allude to it, but it's all it's all happening off screen. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I could be wrong, but I choose to believe that he found out what to do with the plant. (laughs) (laughs) That's just me. They found a way. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, like, you can't throw your whole, like, life and livelihood out the window if you haven't gotten busy yet, maybe. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Like, he's, like, fully, like, by the end, he's, like, breaking the prime directive to, like, stage a rescue mission, and it's hard for me to believe that he'd do that if they didn't, um, you know. Yeah, if they didn't bump uglies, whatever, (laughs) however many analogies we have to, yeah, just having sex. That brings us back to the, like, when Soren is put on trial, Riker bursts into the room and says, like, hey, don't, like, I forced myself on her, don't put her on trial because, like, it was all me. Mm-hmm. And this leads into her impassioned speech where she, um, you know, begs for clemency, basically. I think, like, going back to an earlier question... I think that the the way that they resolve it with the conversion therapy is it's is a plot expedient see mm-hmm. and that like also they kind of they get to sidestep having a moral judgment about the conversion therapy and its effectiveness because of the prime directive the Enterprise crew can't be coming into this society and saying, like, hey, it's right. violent they had to close of you. It. They had to close it off so that their characters um, wouldn't be violating their, their other moral imperatives. Right. Um, yeah, once again, the, the prime directive kind of is the... Deus ex machina. Deus ex machina in a way, but it's, like, it's the thing that matters more than, mm. than anything else. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, you know, there's a reason that they call it the Prime Directive. Um, but I think it's, like... General Order 1. General Order 1. <laughs> uh, it's useful in this context that they are able to and use it for the plot. And yeah. they're not, like, trying to change the culture of the Jedi. Do we want to touch on anything else? Or do we want to talk about uh, poly subplots? Oh, Yeah. Let's yeah. talk about Polly's yeah, sub- subplot. Do we have time for that? Um, uh, yeah, I'm... <laughs> I, okay. So I have a personal, like, headcanon for Riker and Deanna that they are in a committed relationship and that they're not having sex while they're both serving aboard the Enterprise. Mm-hmm. Um, but, right, so, like, what do we know? Can I just list some facts? Yeah, list yeah. some facts. Um, we know that they used to be official. Mm-hmm. They used to date officially mm-hmm. before the series started. Um, we know that her mother is like, why don't you just marry him? And that the main reason they're not together is because he wants to be a starship captain. They return to that repeatedly. I don't know what that means, but it's a reason. And, uh, he gets super jealous when she's going to be married away in one episode and he comes to let her know when he has feelings for other people Mm -hmm. intermittently they have conversations about their relationship throughout the tng um series and they're like in in movies and also in in books they are together 
And I think that the, the like, he wants to be a starship captain reason is that he, he, well, the reason that they don't continue their relationship before they end up on the Enterprise together is that he can't, like, make a commitment to her that he feels he can honor and also serve aboard a Starfleet ship towards mm. this particular goal. Mm-hmm. And then she, you know, she ends up being assigned to the Enterprise also. And so in a very early episode, if not the first episode, they have a conversation about how they can't be in a romantic relationship when they're serving together because there's, you know, there's sexual harassment implications therein because he's essentially her um, superior Right. right. They're emotionally intimate. They spend, they sometimes have like romantic things that they do together. But at least in the period of time where they're serving aboard the Enterprise, I don't think that they're yeah. having sex. What's the romantic? Can you give me an example? Ooh, I think that like when they go to Risa one oh, yeah, time they or go other, to Risa together. Okay. They like have like a little getaway yeah. and Risa, if you don't remember, is the sex planet. Yeah. It's yeah. the vacation, like it's everybody's the... hot in their it's the, yeah. like they're going to Hawaii or the beach or whatever yeah. and it's yeah, it's very tiki. Yeah, it's like a tiki sex beach. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so yeah, so that's my their like non monogamy story. Yeah. Uh, in my in my viewpoint, and that like I think that one of the one of the beautiful things about that relationship is that they accept each other in how they like behave normally. So you know we we rag on Riker a lot for being a womanizer for like always wanting to have sex with aliens. Um, and, and whatever, but I think it's like, it's an inherent component of his personality Mm -hmm. and instead of performing jealousy on a regular basis, Deanna's like, this is who he is. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting because she's an empath and, uh, he is probably fundamentally, polyamorous or fundamentally non-monogamous is part of his personality, but she can like read his brain and be like, oh, he still loves me. Mm-hmm. I mean, that might be part of what's going on or just that she has complete faith in him that this is doesn't really have to do with his feelings for her. Oh, yeah. I mean, oh, I, another piece of evidence towards their like strong and intimate bond is that she, they can communicate telepathically occasionally. Oh, right. Which she cannot do with anybody else except her mom. Yeah. Um, and or like another um it is Um do, wait, so, do we have time to yeah. talk about Denobulans? Yes. Yeah, okay, so the subplot of the Enterprise episode is Dr. Flox's wife is visiting and she's the second of his three wives, and a proper Denobulan marriage has at least six people. My understanding is that each individual has three spouses. Yes. And so... And they appear to mostly be straight. At least not in this episode. They don't complicate it with, like, gender nonconforming or bisexuality or whatever. Right. So each of them has three spouses, which I think means you can get pretty high in the number of who who's okay. in their constellation. Right. Yeah. Um, you, you, you might have a... I mean, there are, are jokes throughout the series of uh, Flocks writing 
letters to a number of his metamors children. They, they, they return to this uh, as a point of open-minded humor uh, repeatedly. But in this particular episode, it takes center stage because his wife shows up and spends the entire episode sexually harassing the southern dish that is Trip Tucker. Yeah, it's like really I mean, she weird. can't. I mean, I don't, I don't like blame her. Um, her behavior is very problematic. Just one second before we talk about this, you use the term metamor, and I use the term constellation. These oh, yes. are terms that show up regularly in polyamorous conversation. Your partner is your paramour, and then your metamor is your partner's partner. Mm -hmm. And your constellation is the aggregate of all of the people that you're dating and all of the people that they're dating. So Good, good catch. Yeah, so anyway, uh, just in case you were confused by what those terms mean. But yeah, her behavior towards Trip is super problematic. Yeah, and, and you, you do see him, like, you eventually get evidence that he's attracted to her. He talks to his friends about it. He eventually confronts Phlox and is like, I don't know how to tell you this, but your wife keeps hitting on me. And Phlox is just so tickled and goes, oh, there's nothing better than a Denobulan woman taking an interest in you. And, and he's like, but she's your wife. And he's like, so? And he's like, she's your wife? The joke, I guess, is that Trip is revealed to be very close-minded and uptight. And uh, Phlox gives him the go-ahead and he does not take it because it still makes him uncomfortable that she's, she's someone else's wife. But long before this, we have, we have no evidence that, uh, that wifey has any idea that he's interested in. And she's just hitting on him and touching him. Yeah, she touches him. Constantly. She gets really close to him regularly. She's like... They're, they're supposed to be working together to set up some piece of equipment so that he can run some analysis or something. I don't remember what, but she's an expert in this piece of equipment that the Enterprise has just acquired. Her name is Fiesel. Fiesel and Trip are in a working relationship, but every scene that they're shown in together, she's touching him, he, she's very close to him, and he his whole body language is like, this makes me very uncomfortable. I wish that it would stop. Yeah, he, and he makes excuses to leave. Mm-hmm. Um, and he backs off. He, he blushes. It's, I mean... It's played for laughs. Yes. Because, the, because of the genders that are... That she is a woman and he is a man. And so because she's very aggressively hitting on him, it's, it's funny... And the only problem is that Trip thinks that it's not okay within the bounds of, like, whatever marriage she's in. Mm -hmm. But should this behavior have been done with, like, the genders reversed, I think it would have been played very differently. Yeah. And been, like, or at least, immediately recognized as creepy. Yes. Like, it would, not have been, it would not have been played for humor. Or if it would have, it would have been decades and decades ago or called out. Yeah. I think in 2003. And I actually wonder that now that we're talking about it, whether the she's your wife thing is really his reason. Or if he's just not down and he thought that that was his out. Mm hmm. <laughs> well, I mean. It's hard to tell. It's, it's hard to tell at first. He does, like, at some point have a conversation with one of his um, crewmates where he admits that he finds her attractive. Yeah, but, but that's kind of not the point. I mean, I've been in situations for sure where I found someone attractive and 
they were pursuing me, but for whatever reason, I was not into it, mm-hmm. right? Like, my physical attraction to them might not be the only reason why I don't actually want to have sex with them. There could be many other factors. Right, including their behavior. Right. Where she, like, all of her behavior is, like I said before, problematic. It's like she's she's sexually harassing him uh, in the workplace. Yeah. And it's... It makes them uncomfortable. It's detrimental to the work that they're trying to do together. Well, definitely, because he keeps trying to get out of it. Yeah, and so this is this is like classic. Which is not a good way to learn a new piece of equipment. No, it, it's potentially a powerful instruction about like why sexual harassment is bad and why like Title IX steps in to address sexual harassment because it directly leads to differences in access, differences in opportunity. And differences yeah. in, like, the way people can conduct themselves in in the workplace. And here, you know, 10 years ago or 200 years in the future, we have Troy and Riker, who are possibly in love, avoiding all sexual contact just because this could be a problem. Right. While I very much appreciate the Denobulan framework of polyamory and that it's presented as no big deal, basically... But I, I really wish that it didn't also involve some blatant sexual harassment. Yeah, that they neither called her out or that they found another way to explore it, maybe with a willing participant. Yeah, okay. seen in like a less charitable light, it communicates that people who are in these types of relationships are sexually aggressive and inappropriate. And predatory. And predatory. In my identity as Polly, like, that's a thing that I worry about. And it's, mm-hmm. a reason, it's a reason that I'm not out about it in certain areas of my life. But because, you know we're putting this on the internet. Well, <laughs> I'm out now, motherfuckers. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I yeah. haven't been out, like, in, in previous workplaces because I, I really worry that I'm going to pre- be perceived as promiscuous Mm -hmm. in a way that that like with a negative connotation um that i'm going to be perceived as sexually available at work which Mm. i definitely Mm -hmm. do not want and that like neither of these things are actually true just because i have that identity but it's a way that people with this identity are often portrayed Right. So so while the show is kind of gesturing toward being open-minded and including different kind of lifestyles, it's actually doing a lot more harm than good in this particular instance. Like early portrayals of gay people in film and other media, they're always the bad guy. Right. Or even if they're not gay, they're effeminate. They're effeminate, like, yeah. Like Jafar and uh, Scar and all of the Disney villains. Yeah. For just one example. Historical representation of gay people in cinema and television. And bi people. And bi people. Or demonized. As an early portrayal of polyamory, Mm. they're in a way also being demonized. In that I see, I'm like, I'm disappointed. I also have some hope around that because portrayals of LGBT folk have come so far. Yeah. If I could just soften what you say a little bit, mm. I'm not sure if they're... Because Phlox is also, like, the hero of this episode. Mm. 
for trying to save to Paul's life. Like That's this true. is all happening in the same episode. I don't know if they're being demonized, but it's like demon light. Yeah, okay. Just this one aspect of them. I think our like read of her behavior as being really problematic is not the show's read of no. her behavior. Right, which is that that's definitely true. Yeah, and so yeah, so I think this this point that I'm trying to make is maybe like not super strong, but at the same time, you know, the commentary about LGBT people having been yeah. portrayed negatively is certainly true, and mm-hmm. so I guess I want to keep like yeah. I want to keep an eye on how poly people are portrayed yeah. as it becomes a more mainstream identity, um, and and observe whether or not this like this arc is something that we go through. Mm-hmm. But on uh, on one of my Star Trek chat groups, I know a number of poly people who are really fond of the Denobulan. So representation is important, but it's also important to to recognize the complexities and the the ickiness behind some of that portrayal, and to not turn a blind eye toward it just because you're excited to see it. Um, yeah, and I TV. hope like I hope that if nothing else, this conversation sheds a light on the fact that those characteristics are separable. Like, mm-hmm. there's people who perpetrate sexual harassment and there are poly people. They don't yeah. necessarily always happen in the same person. But they do in Fiesel. Well, I think that we've sufficiently complicated everything about these two episodes. If we missed something, please let us know. Or if there are other LGBT episodes you'd uh, like to hear us discuss. And uh, for now, <laughs> live, live long and prosper. Next week on Intertractional, Mind Rape is Still Rape, we discuss TNG episode violations, Voyager episode retrospect, and Enterprise episode fusion. Intertractional is a production of Federation and Fempire, written and produced by Ryan Ascalisi and Becca Motola Barnes. Original music by Danny Kafka, production advice by Danny Kafka. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Intertractional. Tell us what you think. Join our Facebook group to discuss this episode with us and other fans. Email us at intertractional at gmail.com. You can even send us a voice memo. Visit our website at intertractional.com for show notes, images, and citations. Intertractional is available on all podcast platforms, including iTunes. If you like this podcast, help others find it by taking a moment to rate and review us and subscribe on iTunes. It really makes a big difference.